Hello and welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. You know, uh, something, yeah, what do you want to give me for it? Nothing. Oh, okay, well, I've got some wonderful news on that front. You know, like it's this uh, podcast is going to be on Luminary soon, which is a subscription model. Well, I've managed to negotiate for you three months free of Under the Skin and all the other premium content that Luminary will offer. It's going to be like basically an app on your phone and if you pay six quid a month or whatever, you get all the premium content. Well, you'll get that now three months for free if you're a non-US listener. You've got to sign up to the mailing list before the 22nd of April. You'll be sent a special link on the 23rd of April to download the app. Keep an eye on uh, social media. That's True Russell Brand on Insta at Rusty Rockets on Twitter for an announcement, okay? And then you You'll get free months free, which will be good, won't it, for you? Free months, free of charge. Then presumably after that, then you have to pay. But as I've said to you before, it's only like six quid. What's that, a cinema ticket in a not very nice cinema, probably in the middle of the daytime in the rain, or rather an expensive coffee, but a delicious one somewhere. Uh, If you're in the US, you can go to luminary.link forward slash Russell and get that deal right now. You're in for... One hell of an episode this time. It's Wendy Mandy, Underground Shaman. Those in the know will be familiar with Wendy Mandy because I feel that she treats a lot of very high-profile people, although she would be uh, she would never say that because, obviously, privacy, etc. But she's uh, a very powerful person. We talk about living in a commune, alternative modes of living, the true nature of consciousness, the kind of assumptions, the unconscious assumptions that undergird our social conventions, what would be called, I believe by Foucault, epistemes, periods that are determined by stuff we're not really thinking about. I could be being reductive there about Foucault and indeed Wendy Mandy, but it's a a fantastic podcast. She's a a shaman, a healer, a good woman, and a right laugh, and it was tremendous to spend time with her. Uh, Oh, I'm going to LA soon, and I'm going to be doing some live shows. Watch my various social media accounts. You know, I'm True Russell Brand on uh, Instagram. I'm Rusty Rockets on uh, Twitter. We've got a brilliant YouTube channel, which you're going to watch more, particularly if you're not signing up to Luminary. The YouTube content will always be of value. There'll be some podcast stuff on YouTube and there will be our other content about, you know, healing and personal development. Anyway, I'm going to be doing some live shows in uh, Los Angeles. Come check them. My new book, Mentors, is available coming out in the US on the 9th of April, I see. And Rebirth is on Netflix. So all those things are available. If you want to talk to me on Twitter, at Rusty Rockets, hashtag under the skin if it's about this. True Russell Brand on Instagram and you know about my Facebook page and YouTube channel, presumably. You listened to Jay Shetty, right? Um, me and Jay Shetty, that was a lot of fun. Let's have a, a look at some of these comments. Buck the narrator. You know it's a great podcast when I plan to watch only the first 10 minutes and watch the whole video. Yeah, I love it when I do that. Uh, but I do watch things on YouTube now. A lot of Terence McKenna I'm down in at the moment. Chloe Peacock. But he is right, actually good that he wasn't always looking and used to be fat as it helps him to have compassion and empathy for others rather than just being full of himself. Chloe Peacock, I couldn't agree more. I feel like I've read Chloe Peacock's name before. Are you including her a lot, Django? Well, it's a pretty unusual name, Chloe Peacock. 
Okay, so that's some comments on the great Jay Shetty there. So uh, let's get into Wendy Mandy, Wendy Mandy. I think you're going to love her. She's a person that I feel has great maternal, matriarchal, she power, woman, bolt, energy. I really enjoyed being with her. She gave me what is called five element acupuncture treatment, jolted me up. She gave my wife a treatment. She found it very, very powerful as well. Uh, follow my wife at Joy Journal if you, you know, I can't start tell, talking about her private experiences, but she does have her own Instagram account that she does stuff on. But now let's, let's get into at Wendy Mandy and learn about new ways of being in the world with a loving, wise woman under the skin. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Wendy Mandy, thank you for coming to join me on Under the Skin. I'm very happy to finally meet you. Same here. <sighs> so, I want to talk to you, I suppose, about healing, because I suppose that the work you do is healing work. Is that correct? It is. It, it's in the bracket of healing work. What do you describe the work you do as, may I ask? Um, if... First of all, we have to understand that the work I do is with frequency. So uh, a frequency in the quantum field. And so I move energy about. And uh, my two main tools are five element acupuncture, which is the acupuncture of the Chinese court and was the uh, acupuncture of the emperor. And it treats the fundamental essence of somebody. So I'm treating the terrain rather than the syndrome or the symptom. The symptom will go away because you're treating the real cause of it. And the shamanic work, I mean, the word shaman has been slightly too much bandied about. Has it? I've been bandying it about a bit. It, it is a bit of a bandy about. Um, but I think, uh, I mean, I don't call myself a shaman, but people have started to call myself call me a shaman. I don't know what else to call me. But a shaman is someone who walks between worlds and can see energy and will take out scratches on the sort of CD of your energy field that are keeping you back. So you're taking out energetic patterns from the system that keep repeating themselves in people's lives. Mm. And although it sounds peculiar, um, I use a rattle to close my left brain down to see your energy field with my right brain. I will then take out, I will then track what I think is going on and then take that out and then balance the frequency with sound. So the rattle is for you rather than for the person you're treating? Uh, no, not necessarily because the rattle gets me into an altered state but it's actually a tool of moving frequency about. And also the person very often feels stuff coming off them. I mean, most of the time they can feel that something's going on, that I've got some kind of hoover out and I'm hoovering stuff up or moving stuff. We just had a treatment. Uh, if you're wondering what that noise is, that's the door being opened. Lovely Charlie bringing us a coffee each and Bear, the opportunist that he is, 
coming into the room, but he's he's left again. I just had a treatment with you, Wendy, Mandy, as you obviously know because you were there, but for people <laughs> uh, listening. And uh, I, you did the five-point acupuncture. Five-element. Five-element acupuncture <laughs> and the rattling. Uh, and firstly, my observation with the rattling, when it was moving from different points around me, like it was to my left, to my right, above me, beside me, wherever, it felt like a sort of a kind of sensory hypnosis in that the point of focus was being continually moved and shifted. And I could see how that would be would affect perception and alter patterns in the same way as we, you know, there's a natural, I guess whenever I talk about this kind of thing, I am sort of conscious of a a, a wall of scepticism that I'm always trying to scale or puncture in others because I'm interested in academic study. I'm interested in science, but I'm also interested in God and I'm also interested in techniques to change the world. And it's likely that these techniques are not going to come from within our existing systems. They're going to come from marginalized, maligned ideas. So uh, that's why I'm very curious about the kind of work that you do that I guess some people may see as mysterious. Well, of course. um, I mean, I've been doing this work for 40 years and this is the first time I feel that people are open enough to hear this kind of work. I've kept under the radar. If you look me up online, you'll find very little. And um, I have decided to talk about this kind of work because science is now proving it. So the fact that you're a frequency in the quantum field is now being proven. We know that a particle can be in two places at once. We know that the particle and the observer are not separate. And Gabo Amate, my hero, is scientifically proving that patterns that occur between conception and three years old are going to affect us for the rest of our lives. I've learnt all of my work from marginalised indigenous people who have always understood energy. But unfortunately, religion didn't understand and made them sound like savages. And people like Pinker and Freud have said that we are savages unless we're civilised but actually to me civilization has done the opposite yeah it makes sense actually in a way when you consider that the impact of socialising industrialising and civilising forces brings your attention more and more to the material and the practical and of course I'm very grateful for technological advancement medicinal advancement and many of the incredible uh, uh, phenomena and uh, expertise bought by science and medicine. But I can see that a kind of, uh, what do I want to call it, um, reductivist physics has prevented us from seeing that the physical world is only one aspect of being that we interface with, that not everything can be reduced to physics. Well, the thing is is that, um, unfortunately, science in the main has separated everything and everything is connected now we're coming back to understanding that everything is connected so um everybody in the indigenous world realized that we are connected Mm. and uh that one of the things i'm trying to do at the moment is finish a book called the cooperation of um the the what is it the not the survival what was darwin's expression Survival of the fittest. The survival of the fittest. The survival of cooperation 
Conversations on remembering our right relationship to each other and nature. In fact, Darwin was maligned because he would never have said it was the survival of the mm. fittest. And as you know, uh, to help colonialism, they decided to say that it was the fittest. And Pinker decided to say that chimpanzees are somehow murderous people and that we're descended from them. But I don't believe that. I think we used to remember that we are all connected. Therefore, to destroy another is to destroy ourselves. To destroy nature is to destroy ourselves. And that science has unfortunately separated everything and is now remembering that everything's connected. And I think there are, It's. it seems very depressing on the planet today, but I, I'm not depressed at all. I think the boat is turning. And I think that an, a lot of people are beginning to remember things. My Samburu elder, the Samburu are ma part of the Maasai, the elders are saying that the ear is coming back. In other words, somehow something's happening to our brains that we are remembering collectively that we can have peace, we can have happiness, we don't have to be lonely, we don't have to destroy the planet, that all of these things don't have to be like that, that that there is a returning to remembering that we are all one, we are all expressions of everything, and that nature and ourselves are interwoven. Yes, it's certainly true uh, and accepted within academia, I mean in the field of philosophy, that many of the narratives that were presented to us as objective are now being challenged and undermined, many of which come from post-enlightenment scientific disciplines. Things that were presumed to be objectively true are being looked at differently. And, it, you know, when I um, reflect on the Vedic understanding of this age as being uh, the Kali Yurt, an age of darkness, I can see how that equates to us being in a time of material, a time where we are thinking only about what we can receive through the senses rather than investigating what is it that our senses are connected to, what is receiving the senses. Wendy, how did you get into becoming a shamanic healer so how did i get into it hmm um i think that uh as a small child uh i spent a lot of time in nature i spent i was born in malaysia and then i spent the first five years in nigeria and um the relationship i had with the local people was very very loving i think anyone who tells you that they've had an african childhood or they've had local people looking after them. There's a, a presence that these people have. They know how to be present with children. So they make you feel heard and seen and allowed. And um, so Why I, were you there? What was your family um, doing? So um, my, my father was in the army. So, oh. so um, they were there. But my parents were quite... Um, sort of bohemian types really they they would allow me to play outside they weren't restrictive and they they weren't racist people but they were colonial so i had to come to terms with the fact that they were these people were servants 
but that they gave me all the love, which obviously influenced me for the rest of my life. That, you know, where was the true love coming from and the relationship to each other and nature? So that had a profound effect on my little self. Who in particular do you recall that you felt very loved by? All of them. Every single person that worked for my parents. From the cook to the gardener to the women that held me against their wonderful soft breasts. All of them. The singing, the smells, the food. The the whole thing is only a good memory. And the worst thing was leaving and coming back to cold, brown, grey, restrictive England. Really? Is that how you felt? Oh, terrible. I I didn't really feel okay again until I hit the Portobello Road when I was 15. <laughs> the smells, the sounds, the everything. And in a way, I've stayed living around the Portobello Road since. What do you feel that you missed? You know, what was your life like between the period where you left your colonial yet a native life and uh, moved back to England. What was that period like? Um, well, I was thrust into uh, a Christian village. So Where? D- on the borders of Dorset, Wiltshire and Hampshire. So uh, I had a, nu- a good countryside life. I had ponies. I stayed out in the garden. I'm, um, you know, I made little houses in the garden. I connected to nature. Uh, and... My parents weren't restrictive, so I could play. But I was incredibly aware of class structures, of divisions, of separateness. It felt very separate. I was very aware that the village children went to a different school to my school. All these kind of separations started to really, really affect me. And I didn't like school. I I didn't really like any of it. But luckily for me, I hit the late 60s. And the first sign of freedom was the sound of the music coming out of the Bakelite radio and me dancing to the first sounds of indigenous music of some sort coming through jazz, Jerry Lee Lewis, anyone, and me dancing around and my father saying, can you turn that racket off? And me saying, no, it's the sound of freedom. So that's what you so you think that the sort of cultural revolution of the 60s you know which I don't know loads about but I feel like you know that the beats were significant a kind of fusion with eastern mysticism came through culturally and there was a sense of freedom and cultural revolution which obviously inevitably became repackaged and commercialized when it first came it felt very pure Mm. and uh something happened it was you know, we went. I went on the march on Saturday, and it was a very heartwarming event. I mean, really, on Saturday in London, because it it made me feel so glad to be a Londoner. Because in a way, I feel a Londoner. It was such a peaceful, incredible march. It was extraordinary. In front of me was a placard with uh, a man uh, saying he had a pencil in his hand, and he said, "I'm, I'm." just away from writing a very strong letter. I am now very cross. So British. I didn't see any uh, bad behaviour. I didn't see anything. And that um, coming into London in the late 60s felt like you were in the epicentre of the universe and Mm. everything was happening. Music, clothes, freedom, some kind of freedom from the restrictions of 
Victorian England was happening. There was such, you could mix classes, colours. Suddenly I felt ageless, genderless and colourless. So, suddenly all these divisions seemed to be beaten down again. But it turned out to be a bracketed period, like a, a, a moment, whilst I'd say, you know, some of the ideas from the 60s abide, that kind of new age movement, I think, is commonly regarded as being a little bit wishy-washy, rootless, and sort of Absolutely. lacking in potency. The whole thing went into what I call spiritual bypass. Loads went off to India. Nobody, and people tried to... People were taking LSD and and seeing other worlds. But what happened is that they hadn't done the work on themselves. So, of course, none of it worked. Mm. And, uh, you know, part of what we might talk about is uh, my work is uh, understanding and remembering indigenous knowledge to create a new way of living now. And the hippies definitely failed, and you can understand why, because they didn't work on their internal self. They didn't work on... Um, they they wanted a quick trip to enlightenment without understanding what that really means. I think all of us want that, because we're sort of, in a sense, have been schooled that there are uh, accessible solutions. This sort of phenomena of immediacy and medication has only been exacerbated when you think about the... Subsequent changes since then, we live in an age where information is at our fingertips, where relationships are regarded as commodities, where sex is regarded as a commodity, the sort of commodification of all things. So this mm, idea of resurrecting indigenous knowledge, I personally don't regard as a kind of nostalgic hankering after the idea of noble savagery. I see it as a kind of return home a reinvestigation and reinstantiation of necessary cultural roots that remind us of what our relationship is to one another and to the planet totally i think i think lots of things have happened on the planet that we're not sure about i mean if you read if you look at enough gaia tv you might get some clue uh, as to whether or not aliens came to this planet who were the gods etc but what we do know is that 12000 years ago we somehow came out of the, um, we came into the agricultural revolution and started owning each other and land mm. and civilizing ourselves. And something happened when you own land and you um, own each other, something peculiar happens. And we've had 12,000 years of that. And the indigenous or Aboriginal people that I have visited that aren't, haven't been haven't uh, been taken over by Christianity or Islam. They have this incredible relationship to the land and each other that binds them together in a different frequency that we've got to try to remember. And uh, that that's really my life's work, is to try to translate that into modern day because we can't save these tribes. They're disappearing. And... Um, it's it's part of the big cycles of life. However, I think we can use technology, we can use all sorts of things to make a very different world where we have a different way of relating to each other and nature that doesn't destroy the planet and make ourselves feel lonely. I think loneliness is the big affliction that I treat every day. 
Yeah, there's a lot of loneliness going on. So much. It's people are a bit embarrassed and ashamed to feel lonely, evidently. Yes, it's um, when people admit to me that they feel lonely and I say, of course you do. It would be peculiar if you didn't because our society makes us lonely. Then they feel some kind of relief and then we start talking about how they can start to live differently. How can we in a post-civilised world ever hope to emulate the structures that human beings lived in in this real or imagined utopia where we were all connected to one another and the planet? How can we with the many powerful influences of commerce, government, our own inbuilt prejudices, what, how can we ever overcome them and what systems of living would you uh, imagine could replace them? Okay, so I have a property outside Bath and um, in my treatment room I have this um, little notice that says, I've learned so much from my mistakes, I'm thinking of making a few more. So I don't have any easy answers and I think I've made most mistakes that can be made by a human being. But what I've realised is that if you're going to live with a group of people and combat loneliness and live in right relationship to nature and each other. You have to work on yourself. So with with the nature, we can't own land. Like this is a beautiful piece of land I'm sitting on now. And you're the custodian of this land for the moment. And in this land are other energies that might seem far-fetched, but they're the spirits of the trees and the plants and the elementals. And we now know that trees and plants have a language. There's so much science going on about that. I have a little box from musicoftheplants.com in Italy and you put electrodes on the roots and the leaves and you can play music with the plants. So I have this avocado plant that I grew from an avocado. It was in the compost, so we planted it. And I came back from a trip recently and the avocado plant looked not very happy. Really? So we put the electrodes on it and when they're singing to you or you're playing music, they go beep, 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 beep. And this one was going beep, beep, beep. It was a dour little avocado. It was very upset. So I moved it next to some other plants, kind of fussed around its leaves, gave it a bit of water. We put the electrodes back on and it went beep, 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 beep. (laughs) <laughs> and that was a that's a a, a a real demonstration of energy that helps people understand because you can say trees talk and you know a tree hugger a spiritual person can hug a tree and feel it but you know your average bloke needs something a bit more and and this is the kind of technology that's happening that can help people understand. So sort of translate. Exactly. Because, you know, like a lot of people, when we talk about sort of quantum physics and frequencies and energy, uh, people that I listen to that are, you know, quantum physicists say, no, the sort of spiritual people are misusing this information and trying to make it all woo-woo and cute and nice. And say like something like with those plants and like, you know, hearing the sounds of it. I feel like, there's a sort of tendency, more, more like an ideology that is sort of determined to make everything sort of joyless and materialist and no, we're not all one and we can explain that in a way that doesn't lead to... See, like, 
what I recognise is that like many scientific disciplines and endeavours, in spite of their claim for objectivity, are financially underwritten by a particular type of ideology, and that ideology is the preservation of existing power structures, and those existing power structures require that we don't look at alternative systems to live with one another, don't look at alternative ways of sharing power, don't look at a different way of treating the planet. So I... The, would I would countenance, uh, uh, decry, confront the uh, claim of mainstream science to be objective, not the process of analysing data objectively. Of course, that you know that aspect of science is absolutely brilliant. But many of the conclusions that are drawn are not unbiased. They are directing us towards particular types of behaviour and empowering particular institutions and interests. Absolutely. I I uh, actually bought a bought some of it to you today, but I forgot to show you, of, oh, of myself walking with the um, Maasai elder in the bush. Where are the Maasai? The, the, the ones that I know in the northern Kenya, uh. up in Laikipia. And I'm walking with him in the bush, and he is explaining how they see the world, that the world is talking to you the whole time. Oh, now, a cool. scient- scient- scientist would say no, but when you walk with them and the bird calls or the snake goes across your path, they are absolutely tuned in with their right brain to their environment talking to them the whole time. Now, we know that dolphins talk to each other. We know that elephants talk to each other. And as I said, we now know that trees are talking. But these people have not lost that language. Uh. And that language is there, but you have to open your hearts and your eyes to see that language. So I wanted to record him before they die completely because they're putting a, a massive pipeline, roads oh, and got normal stuff. Now, you know, I used to just want to save indigenous tribes, but now I think, okay, this is too difficult and I've got to go in the cycles of life. They're disappearing, but we can make new tribes look at my jumper gangs of love um we can and uh, i've thought really carefully about how we can try to do you can't that use your jumper in an argument <laughs> um and with their just watching them what are the things that we can do where we can live more happily with each other as they do how can our children laugh more play more and what do we do about couples codependent sex I mean, we could do a lot of podcasts on how we can take the lessons from these people, and that's what I'm writing about at the moment, and translate that properly into new ways of living. Mm. I mean, uh, yesterday I read an interesting article on people in London living cooperatively. So they have the main space, but they all have their own bathroom Um, and bedroom and kitchen and their offspring can share the space and perhaps it's a single mum but the the gut the there's a man there that is is a mentor or father at the time I think in London they will have to have new ways of living down in Bath we have my house which is a five-bedroomed house and uh, my family come and go, and we have the big shared space of the sitting room and kitchen, and then everyone else has their own pod outside of their own kitchen, their own bathroom, their own sitting room, so that you can have time to yourself or you can come and join in. And you don't have washing up rotors, 
because washing up rotors need to come from someone making a list or being the boss. What you have is you, an understanding that everybody is uh, in charge of the space, everybody. So the little kid is going to go, if they remember, will go and put something in the recycling. Because, you know, kids remember sometimes and other times, but they know that that's going to go in the recycling, that the the plants need watering. When you're in a shared space where you are custodian of that space, you don't walk past a plant that's dying and think, well, Daisy should water that. You water it. The, what you're describing in political terms, like you know, is like a, a, a anarchism, like a, a like that. Because anarchism is, as I understand, not chaotic as it's presumed to be by many of its detractors. But that human beings left alone will organise themselves into systems without a, an oppressive external governing force. Absolutely, like the march on Saturday. I did not see one policeman, and I have. It was completely peaceful. We're cutting back, they're giving it all to private security firms these days. <laughs> I know, I know. But, but, but Wendy Mandy, with these, uh, that, your bath time utopia there outside the countryside, which I'm very keen to come and visit with the pods and all that, I like it. And I think you're probably right that we should be emulating communal models. But some people would say that there we do require hierarchy and structure in order to function. I know that a lot of the times you hear that from people that benefit from there being hierarchies and structures. But the other thing, this is me, even as a person that's quite, I consider myself, I hope I am, open to new ideas. Uh, I say... Uh, like, don't the uh, indigenous tribes typically have some sort of structure? Elders, leaders, etc. No, don't have leaders. You have elders. Not? You have elders. Now, listen, I've seen Lion King. And it's <laughs> Mustafa who's clearly in charge. <laughs> you have elders. Yeah. Okay, so the elders are elders because they've been through initiation and they've been through stuff. And they are, and being an elder is a very responsible set up so in you always have to have older people who are elders and babies and everyone around but the 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 main thing is that you have worked on yourself mm. so you know when you're um transferring rubbish onto another person yes, basically yes, you've yes. got to work on yourself so that because what happens with these leaders in the cults or the the those leaders power got hold of them so I always say who money, like who like oh god all those hippie David ones David Koresh yeah. that wasn't good Charles all, Manson he yeah, blew it all of, J- Jonestown that was silly the Hallibop lot oh. well even Osho and all that lot you get, people get excited when the cult forms we yep. mustn't make that mistake no we must not make that mistake <laughs> um, so I think that you're the, saying money corrupts and you're going to say something yeah, about power so, corrupting so money talks Wealth whispers, true wealth is silent. And it's the same with power. If you're a powerful person, so for example with child rearing, you don't need rules to bring a child up. But the child needs to know that you know who you are. So you remember with your little one I said, I'm really, really sorry that I'm taking your daddy away to do this work. Really, we should be playing with you because I told her the truth. But I was absolutely sure we were going to come in here. Even if she'd cried, I would have cuddled her and said, yeah, it's really miserable that we're not going to stay playing with you and we're going to work. She would tune in to my certainty and be at peace. 
It's exactly the same in a group of people. If everybody knows who they are and they're not transferring rubbish mm, onto each not other. Not needing to vampire off exactly. one another or parasite or yeah, blame. Yeah, because the, the classic codependent relationship that unfortunately most families are based on. Yeah, it's the um, norm. Codependency yeah, is the my norm. Friend Jane, Explain what codependency means a bit. Codependency is when... So a codependent is if you're okay, I'm okay. A non-codependent is, I can see you're not okay, but I'm okay, and I would like to know how you'd like me to help you find out why you're not okay, but I'm not going to fix you. So I remain in my centre with compassion for your not okayness, but I'm neither triggered by it, nor do I try and fix it, I just keep space. Now most couples, unfortunately, and it's not their fault, start eating each other alive because they spend far too much time around each other, turning each other into grandparents, sister, mother, father, daughter, too many roles for one person. Whereas if you have a collective of people, which in a way before the great Hollywood dream where you've got the, the, the house with the 2.2 children behind a picket fence that has now overwhelmed the world, you had a collection of people around each other, whether it was the village, whatever it was. There were lots of people to rely on. The, in the codependent couple, it's so easy to start arguing because mm. you've got to do everything. Mm. And, you know, I've seen the most amazing couples deteriorate and they love each other, but it's the architecture they live in that is very destructive. But these tribes of which you are so enamoured, they, yes. do, they do have um, systems, like, see this, like, you know, like if, because I'm, because here's what I'm always thinking in the back of my mind: How are we gonna sort this shit out? Right? I'm not uh, like I'm not doing these podcasts and having these chats just for the good of me elf, though. I think it is good. No, for that's me why I'm sitting here because you get shit done. <laughs> so, like, but what I'm thinking is that how like that those tribes do have customs and traditions and stories and narratives and ceremonies and rituals and information that is passed on it's not a bloody free-for-all it's not like you know so and and even say for example we're going to right why don't we start a community of 75 to 100 people why don't we work out what we think is the maximum upper limit of a number of people that can successfully live in a community before it topples over like in chimpanzee societies at around 150 it splits into two because there's too much conflict and they can't organize into successful hierarchies so like in Yuval Noah Harari's book he estimates that human beings are sort of accustomed to living in groups of 75 to 100 say we started trying to do that stuff like this have a like a pod right i reckon we it would like well it's a question it's not what i reckon do you think it would just be enough to go right we all live here and we operate democratically or do you no, think you'd have no, to no, go no, no, right no, no, no one's no. fuck okay, everyone there's a key there's a key to living like this and it's called ceremony go on then okay so the way that indigenous people lived before religion their relationship to nature was so sacred that they would make ceremonies to connect themselves to nature so the there are many ceremonies around the conception of a child the child growing in the womb around the birth of a child and around the naming of the child and around the rearing of the child Every single day is a ceremony to each other in nature. We have routines. Mm. They yeah. have rituals without rhythm. meaning. Exactly. We have routines. So, and they have rhythm and ceremony. When you bring ceremony into your life, 
There's a wonderful book by Sambufo Somay, who was married to Maladoma Patrice Somay of the Dagara tribe. And um, I'll buy you a copy because it's a book of ceremonies of an indigenous village. And it all makes incredible sense. So well, some of the ones they do. They have ceremonies. For example, in in uh, the Dagara tribe, and it's in, in every indigenous tribe, they um, don't have gay people, although they have gay people. They just don't call them gay. They call them gatekeepers. So you have the kind of alpha males. I'd say you're an alpha male. Thank and, you. You can and, come back. <laughs> and the alpha male would probably have many, many wives and many, many children. Keep talking. And then they have the men in the middle that we call gay. But actually, they're gatekeepers. So they're gatekeepers to keep the spirit of heaven and earth, male and female, in balance in the tribe. And sometimes if the alpha male is being a little bit more aggressive, perhaps, about something. You might have had a difficult day. Exactly. The gatekeepers would be doing ceremonies to the spirits, either burning resin or making fires, or they just keep a peaceful thing going on. And yes, they do sleep with each other, the men sleep with the men and the women with the women. But all sexuality in pre-religious society was a connection between the um, sexuality and the spirituality through dancing. If you see any old pictures of African tribes, when they're doing the dancing, they're falling down in ecstasy of the Kundalini rising. They are dancing with, with each other in what seems like a very sensual, erotic way, but it's not separating sexuality from spirituality. And um, Do you think the problem is that sort of, sorry, there's so many interesting things I want to pick up on there. One is, because uh, I heard recently listening to some Michel Foucault stuff on a podcast called Philosophize This, which I like. Where he talked about how, you know, it's a relatively recent phenomena to even categorize types of sexuality you know it's like Absolutely. it's not sort of even really strictly necessary and uh, i find that that's a, a quite a liberating idea i like what you're saying how ceremony and ritual a kind of communal way of relating to the sacred events in our lives acknowledging the sacred whether it is the birth or naming of a child or presumably things that are led by nature like the onset of spring which we're currently going through in the uk or you know, whatever. Like there's ceremonies Absolutely. and rituals, marriage, death, etc. We're tied together with a nature. We acknowledge ourselves as part of it. And I, I like what you said there about rituals instead of uh, like, you know, the ritual is a suggestion that there is meaning and beauty and connection beyond that, which we can commonly understand with only using one aspect of our consciousness and mind. Absolutely. As Gabor Mate said in a podcast I read recently, he he gives people Prozac when they really, really need it in order for them to even be able to be with us. But fundamentally, he knows that these people who are depressed have to understand something deeper mm. about their meaningfulness in this reality. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, that's key. That's, in a way, in, in my, tri my treatment is a, is a kind of ceremony mm. to connect you to connect your emotional self your physical self your intellectual self and consciousness of which you are you are consciousness in a body now the skeptics will say what does she mean by that i can only say 
That's what I mean. If you've seen a dead person, where did the frequency go? What is that? When the heart stops beating and the, the body is still, where is that frequency? And a bit like plastic, you might throw it away, but where does it go? Hmm. Nothing actually the ever disappears. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing ever disappears. And a man Gabo Mate said, like a... Uh, you know, the reason that we extract the spiritual because we couldn't treat people that way if they had souls, e.g. homelessness, refugees, etc. Once we start acknowledging the sacred in human life, then it becomes more difficult to treat people as just units of energy to be used in accordance with the requirements of a social order, pre-existing social order. Right, I like that bit. All right, so now here's another point come up there with that ecstatic tribal dancing around the fire there and everyone getting off with each other. What about the, you mentioned the sort of power of Kundalini. Now, Kundalini... See, the, the point there is that they're not getting off with each other. They're getting off in a group. With the Lord. They're getting off in a group. They're getting off in a group with the... It's not, I like you, so I'm going to take you off and have sex with you in a corner. It's a group <laughs> energy. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's much, that's that's nicer, Wendy. And also, they Look, when reckon... they get married, it was it was religion that called it marriage. They choose, and um, I've got a beautiful um, poem about the Himba tribe that when a man and a woman know, or the woman decides that a child is coming through, she knows which man it's going to come through. And it's not about marriage, it's about the child being conceived. Now, we are so far away from that because it's about the child that matters. It's not about you and me, babe, and then we'll make a, a sort of uh, a small us, which will then dress in clothes that look like us. Oh. It's it's not like that for I them. get you. But, like, uh, my point is this. You're, look, there's a sort of... a couple of centuries at least of programming to reconsider before <laughs> people look beyond even the limitations of nuclear family and perhaps one of the resources that could be useful in helping people to become liberated from the restrictions of their programming is access to the transcendent power of the kundalini talk to me about that kundalini I, i've done kundalini yoga before i have a feeling that there's sort of energy in me somewhere that i can't always access but i would like to access more what, what tell me what you mean by kundalini well i th i think that um i discovered kundalini yoga about 20 years ago and i actually don't like yoga very much mainly because i'm not very good at it but when i first did kundalini yoga i thought this is very interesting because there are the most of us somehow have got stuck in our base chakras. And so a lot of sex addiction pornography is all about the stuck energy that's below the waist only and is not being brought up through the heart like the Africans doing their incredible dance around the fire. And so Kundalini Yoga is a technology, if you like, that releases stuck uh, sexual energy without having to go masturbate on the porn. <laughs> You're lovely. <laughs> I've got this uh, tattoo here on my finger that is the, uh, based on a drawing by Carl Jung of the coronated serpent. The kundalini starts in the lower chakra, uh, in the muladhara and svatisvana, in the kiln there, and rises up and becomes crowned in the higher, in the higher chakras. So like... Yeah, so this is this energy, these energies that are used to help us, pro, you know, procreate, survive, fight, fly, whatever we need to do. 
these energies can be utilized through practice to contribute to our connection to higher to consciousness. Totally. Say? Totally. We have to free the Kundalini from being trapped in the base chakra and use it to go up and open our hearts. Now, you know, there's an awful lot being uh, investigated around uh, the heart um, being a very important part of our body. Heart math, opening the heart. Like it's got a brain it's all, in it or exactly. something. It's all going out. I mean, again, this is science that's very helpful because the uh, the indigenous person will always say, you know, the white man needs to open his heart again. And, well, what does that mean? You know, the heart is this kind of thing that sits in my chest. But no, it's not. It's a heart brain. Like we now know about the gut brain. And like that, there's sort of different types of consciousness held in the heart and in the stomach. Exactly. And now the science around that is proving what these people have always known. Yeah. And we say, I felt it in my gut. My heart hurts. Mm. You know, um, he's a pain in the neck. I've got too much on my shoulders. You know, I was frozen with fear. I mean, you know, like Shakespeare. He, she vented her spleen. He was livery today. I mean, you know, the body talks. Yeah, like so that we have an intuitive understanding which we express through language that there are different types of consciousness and different types of energy held in the body, but we've reduced it to a monotheistic brain-centered model, perhaps to emulate the sort of theological model of one God, meaning one single central dominant force rather than a pantheistic idea of power being spread throughout all relationships and throughout all phenomena. Absolutely. Have a little bit of water and a little bit of your coffee. I'm really enjoying our conversation. It's brilliant. Right, so we talked a bit about Kundalini. Now, you do this shamanism. I've had some of it done on me by you. That means then, what about uh, plant medicines and all that? Okay. Um, I think the reason that plant medicines have come onto the general airwaves is because uh, I, I, I know, I don't believe, I know that planet earth is a conscious being of her own within the universe and um i think it's time for us to wake up and that the plants help us wake up and the reason they help us wake up is that when you take plant medicine and that's not taking drugs what happens with plant medicine is that you start to see and hear and feel and know things beyond the programming of your brain from childhood to now, through school, through your parents or whatever. You start to tap into a collective unconscious of knowing. And um, of course, you know, like all wonderful things, it's going to be slightly abused. I mean, <laughs> tobacco was a wonderful discovery. The tobacco plant's incredible. Look what we've done to tobacco. Um, marijuana is an incredible plant, but look what we've done to that. Which and God, keep overdoing it. Well, I think they're going to copy it. it soon. I mean, I I think these things have to be taken in ceremony with great respect. You right. can't get off your head every night and not do your schoolwork. <laughs> That's you know? what the mistake of wow. I when I've had my only psychedelic experiences were, you know, LSD as a basically a child. You know, that sort of sixteen, seventeen yeah, years old. Yeah, terrible idea. You know, all of these things have always been taken in ceremony with great respect. Um, Who's going to teach everyone? We are. 
<laughs> so you just write a few little systems of like, okay, this is how to live, this is how to live together, this is how to undergo the plant medicine. You done some then? Plant medicine, yes, all of them. Ooh, what, can you talk? Give us. Can we have a little bit of a dictionary of plant medicines? The one I'm, in, I'm okay. interested, obviously, in Mother Ayahuasca. I'm interested in that sort of some okay, of that bark so stuff like, they do in Africa. Okay, so like all kids, the first one I discovered was tobacco. Okay, yeah. um, luckily for me, I wasn't not that interested. So, but I could tell the power of the nicotine. I could tell the power of the tobacco. Um, I managed uh, when I was pretty young to come across a northern Native American and do the peace pipe, which was extremely different, was in done that? in ceremony. Tobacco. It's just, just tobacco. Done, just done differently we get a good, from a fag behind the bicycle shed. What's the buzz like of a peace pipe? Uh, it makes you talk. It's the talk. It makes you, uh, makes you relax and speak. Uh, then, then there was cannabis. And I, was, I always sort of knew to take cannabis... Uh, with respect I think I've always been quite hooked in so I'm a bit of a lightweight I don't need much um, then I was extremely fortunate to find a tribe called the Kogi tribe who are the last of the Tyrona civilization who went to right up onto the Alto Plano in uh, Colombia and it was an extraordinary experience and I took something called Yahe What's that like? It um, sounds bloody good, just its name. It's amazing. It's a kind of ayahuasca. And mm. I, in that trip, which I won't go on about. Why? Well, we've got loads to talk about because it's there's a lot to say that I could say. But basically, I got downloaded with everything I'm talking about now 40-odd years ago, which was very difficult because I came back knowing all this stuff and there was no one to talk to. And this is the yeah. first time I'm talking to the public. Ooh, I it talk must be a right to... relief to get it off your chest. It is. I talk in my treatment room mm. and I talk to my very close friends, but I don't really feel the world has been ready. But basically I got downloaded with this. So it was an extraordinary experience. And then when then I went to see a tribe called the Yawanawa tribe and I went many, many times and took ayahuasca. Where are they, the Yawanawa? In, in, in Acre, which is in Brazil, Ooh. between Peru and Brazil. Um, I, what did you get out of that experience? Uh, just more understanding of our right relationship to each other and nature. These experiences, once you start moving into the sort of psychedelic as opposed to psychoactive experience, did you find that there was a uniformity or repeated themes in the experience, as in, oh my God, this is the same information in a different way? Tyler. Um the information was always the same yeah. that mother nature is our mother that she's always okay it's just us that isn't okay i got two messages one is that she will survive us mm. but we are meant to be doing what we're doing so a message that everything is perfect in a perfect universe it sh it is as it should be however we all have a collective and individual uh destiny that we must live out so in a nutshell loads of other stuff obviously um, but I learned an awful lot from the plant medicines I then took some more ayahuasca in kind of more sort of English scenes was that right mm, no because I but I wanted to do it to see because fundamentally the shaman goes into the forest 
he get, does the diet, which means that he has very little food and only ayahuasca and tobacco for quite a long time, or up to three years sometimes. He Bloody then, hell. yeah, he he really goes deep into himself, he th- and communes with the forest. He then picks the ayahuasca himself. He makes the brew. He then makes up songs that translate between the forest and himself. Those like that plant beeper. <laughs> that's right. Then he he then gives out the ayahuasca and sings the songs that connect the people to the forest and they heal, sometimes by purging, but not always. And the real ayahuasca is not fizz pop, bing, wang, dub, You know, it's not that hallucinogenic as they take in Ibiza and all those places. It can be, but it's more messages it's more realizations. Yeah. Then iboga. What do you mean by that? And what sort of what, can you describe to me the transmission process, as in what it feels like in your head? Like, is it like language, or is it I suddenly now know that it's a this... knowing. It's a knowing, and it's almost as though the mother ayahuasca is talking to you. Um, it's she's gonna gives you a message. So I'll give you an example. This was my last ayahuasca trip with the Yawanawa. There were no hallucinations, nothing, just a voice that came from a Dalek. Do you remember the Daleks? Yeah, I know those guys. I want to exterminate you, that one. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Do you remember there was a nicer one? Do you remember? What do you mean there was a nicer one? <laughs> well, they were well, a terrible bunch, weren't well, they? Well, they the were a pretty terrible bunch. There were, but there was, was one that was like, I, look, I'm just doing this for a job. <laughs> I, I didn't want to be a Dalek, Anyway, to be the, the recesses of my imagination dreamed up a Dalek Oh, you made him up. Well, I'm not going to know him then if you made him up. We all make everything up because we're all one, <laughs> aren't we? Everything's made up by well, us yeah, in a collective true. universe of up. understanding. And this this Dalek said in a Dalek tone, we are taking you up another level. You will need more compassion. <laughs> and it would not stop for six hours. Kept and saying I saying that. Oh, yeah, I was hell. going, what, for my children? Oh, for the earth, uh. my clients, my friends, you know. And the Dalek's and still piping still, up during this. It's still going on. And, and I finally I think went. I it was a Dalek. And I've oh, got no. Annoying. Anyway, I finally went, oh, for myself. And the voice stopped. And from uh, that, I got. deliberately annoying. If, yeah. If I'm not truly compassionate for myself, how the hell can I be compassionate properly for others? If I don't, in other words, self-care right. and walk the walk myself, how the hell am I going to... You got imp- better at that then, have you? Much better. Tell me some of your techniques for self-love, because I know a lot of people listening to this right now struggle to love themselves and be okay. compassionate. My mother did teach me one really good thing. Go on. Before I went to sleep, she told me to write down all the things that had upset and annoyed me in the day. Step 10. And because she, she, was, she was an aristocrat, she said, and then you throw it in the waste paper basket. Oh, but God. <laughs> That's actually a good tip from your mum. <laughs> I would say that, you know, you can burn it or you do whatever you're going to do, but throw it away, tear it up, go to sleep. In the morning, write a gratitude list. Also about all the things heaven. you're grateful for because that puts you in a better resonance mm, mm. and when you're feeling really sorry for yourself try and get up and do something and when you're really struggling what type of thing for someone else or for yourself oh no no for someone else or for yourself Don't make it no doesn't difference. matter you've just got to get into life 
So you can feed Some the... people too lethargic. No, they can do it. They can get their feet on the ground. Get and they up. Get up. Get out of and the bed. And if you're an addict and you're really struggling, you've got to write a structure for every day, one day at a time. They need help, these addicts, don't they, though, these ones? Yeah, because you've got to have a structure every day, one day at a time. Hmm. One like it, yeah. day at a time. So, you know, you can do anything from make yourself a nice drink, go for a run, for, you know, do something that starts the day off. We treat ourselves with love. That's nice. Okay, I like that. That's some good tips. All right, so that's this Dalek came into your consciousness yes. and kept repetitively telling you to be compassionate to yourself. To keep going with more psychedelic information. Okay, so that was that. And then Iboga... Is that's that's somewhere in Africa, is it? Yes, from the Bwiti tribe. Uh-huh. And a boga is extremely good, particularly for heroin addicts. And it does affect the synapses in the brain and can correct really severe addiction that affects your brain. And the way that a boga works is it's rather like sitting with a film of all of the things in your life that have gone wrong. Oh, and cool. you kind oh, I don't of want to go through that again. And you kind of watch it, and it writes itself. It's very difficult to explain. Uh, it's it's not pleasant, <laughs> but it's extremely effective. I like the sound of that, a boga. Hey, when you were just doing that treatment on me, did you feel addicty energy? To be honest, I f- think you're very powerful, and you don't know what the hell to do with it. Ah, uh, the old power, eh? And you you basically are learning how to deal with power. So because you were powerful, you just thought, I'll have more everything. I told you you'd be an alpha in the rainforest with 60 wives. <laughs> but you just need to deal with your power and channel it like you are now. So no, it wasn't like, oh, this feels like a I smackhead. No, you're just too Moorish. Yeah, I've always liked them. Yeah, more. you've just got to deal with the Moorishness and channel the power into anything you can think of. Service. Service. All right, then. So what's the next one after the, what was it called? Bogada. Okay, so Iboga. Iboga. Okay. Um, acacia, what's which that? is the Australian or African. You know the acacia Everyone's tree? Everyone's got one. All of these tribes have all got They've, one. Of course. I wonder what they used to do in England, like in like in our England, Albany. Mushrooms, mushrooms. Right. I haven't got to them thing. yet. Oh. Nice little fellas. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So acacia, uh, which has something else in it, different to ayahuasca, EMG. I can't remember what the word mm. is, but acacia is amazing. Mm. So they they tune you into the symbols of the nature of where these plants grow. And what we have in England and Europe and all over the world, but particularly in England, we have the mushroom. And uh, the thing about psilocybin is I I can't remember the actual numbers, but I think it's 98% non-polluting to people who are addicts, that it's safe, basically. And... um, I don't. I can't remember the science around why mushrooms are such a part of our DNA, but they are, and they hold the secrets, and they always have done. If you go back through ancient English writing, there's always mushrooms about. Really? Yeah. What do you mean, like Chaucer, Shakespeare, all or... of them? Yeah, it would be in mushrooms, um, because psilocybin opens you up to 
the nature in this land. If you if you have mushrooms from the place where they're growing, it it opens you up to a conversation with the nature. Also, uh, do you think that even addicts like me in recovery can safely use in the right ceremonial conditions plant medicine? One hundred percent. That concludes the podcast. See you in about <laughs> 10 years when I come back. <laughs> What's interesting to me is that last November I went to a place called Rhythmia, which is a kind of weird place that's a sort mm, of... Sounds weird. Look, ...looks like a military installation and a bad Hilton hotel right in the middle of very beautiful jungle of Costa Rica. But the reason it works is that it's a very safe place. They medically give you tests first. They do transformational breathing colonics good food all of that around three ceremonies that happen and I was very impressed even though I felt I was being watched by the CIA in some way because it just felt so peculiar this place was so unnatural it it's a it's a good place to send people who need to feel safe and um the the man who runs it for example, was one of the worst addicts ever. I mean, when he describes how he was, I mean, extraordinary. And even though when I looked at him, I could see it was a legitimate way still for him to get off his head. Yeah. I have to admire what he's done. <laughs> because he's created something that uh, really transforms people's lives. Yeah, good on him. Yeah. Setting up his but Hilton I, Hotel. But the the point is... It has to be done ceremonially, properly. And it's obviously we're now abusing ayahuasca. We're probably going to abuse iboga because we don't seem to know what not to abuse. Well, because we, I say this, the external grid always makes you physicalise and materialise. People worry about fundamentalist bloody religions without realising we've already got one. The fundamentalist religion of individualization and materialism, seeing everything through the lens as if you're like some sort of thing wrapped in a bag of skin and all that matters is what you put in your mouth and what you fuck, instead of recognising our absolute unity. Absolutely. I mean, look what we did to the coca leaf. I forgot the coca leaf because I took that with the kogi. Hold on a minute. What do you mean? Well, oh, cocaine, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, that I mean, was, that got out of control. I mean, we've ruined that. Totally. We're like children. Yeah, we ruin things, but <laughs> we ruin things because we don't understand um, how to do things ceremonially. We've ruined sex. That's been spoiled. Yeah, everything. That's <laughs> gone now. And the food. Look what we've done to food. Ruined it. What about? Have you done DMT? Oh yeah. Well, tell me about that. DMT. Okay, so DMT is the um, ingredient in ayahuasca taken out. Again, has to be done in ceremony. But it's who, who with? Who's doing ceremonies for synthesized drugs that have been extracted from a plant? I mean, who's designed it? Um, you? No, not me. No, I haven't designed it. But basically, it's a. If it's done in ceremony, it's a quite good way of someone who's too scared to go to Peru and and vomit for eight hours to understand the brief opening that can happen to their consciousness in a safe place. I've watched like videos obsessively about people like experiences on DMT where they describe sort of archetypal experiences 
meeting with meetings with deities after meetings with machine elves, passing through geometric zones, meeting sort of aspects of consciousness embodied in various ways, receiving divine truths, often not able to communicate them back again and put them into words. I saw this wicked Peruvian shaman describing like, yeah, I did that DMT and how it relates to my typical experience is, is it, yeah, it felt like a condensation of it. And, you know, I've got some wicked stuff on it. Um, a DMT, I think, is a very useful tool to open up consciousness, but it still has to be done in ceremony. And, you know, a lot of kids are, are up in the uh, stone circle at, Glas at Glastonbury off their heads on DMT. And the thing about being a shaman, if I'm going to call myself a shaman, is that if you leave your body out of ceremony, you are going to collect a lot of negative energies and possibly bring them back into your body and not know what to do with them. Yeah. So it's frankly, anything out of ceremony, including sex, is not good for us. So ceremony is like that. While we're right, I, I get it because we we see ourselves as primarily physical beings, but we're primarily spiritual beings. So while interacting in the physical world, we should be continually using ceremony to remind ourselves of our priority as spiritual beings. Absolutely, I would say we are consciousness, soul in a human body, not a human body having a soul. Yeah. So Flip absolutely, it. absolutely. That is what we have to remember. We need to remember that we are sacred and that we are in a body and being in a body is incredible. It makes it's, sense, isn't it? Because when things happen to people that inadvertently for a moment make them feel sacred, whether it is a sexual experience, a narcotic experience, watching football on a brilliant late goal, when people are like, oh my God, it feels like people want that forever. In, in a reductivist way of looking at, no, no, this hormone was released and that hormone was released, but temporarily you felt at one. I read this study, semantic study once, on uh, the sort of analysis of the word love and its various incarnations throughout language. And they said the most common thing you could break it down to mean was union. That's what people were saying. You know, you might love a football team. You might love a pair of shoes. You might love a person. I mean, but, but like, ultimately, it's a sense of I want to be one with this. I am one with this. This is me. I am this. Absolutely. You've got it. That's what we're looking for. We, we want to remember that we are, at, we are all connected. We want to remember that. And we want to remember that wonderful feeling. For us to experience this sense of connection in community is going to, I believe, I don't know if I'm right because I'm guessing, devolution of power. I feel that power has become too centralised. I'm talking about political power, but political power be a manifestation of other forms of power. So, you know, I met, evidently you went on one of the Brexit marches. I query the, both the motivations for remain and leave. I feel that most things that happen in the political field are sort of warped manifestations of people's inability to cope with living divorced from spiritual connection and from ceremony and from meaning and from connection. So, but like, I feel that so like one of the things, you know, because I speak to a lot of political type people as well as therapists, he, you know, I've had a couple of people I suppose are in healer type categories. But my sense is that when you're talking about how these things come together, people living in community, having a relationship with the transcendent, acknowledging oneness, bringing ceremony back into life. You know, you're talking about clear principles. It's not, we're not talking about just woo-woo, let's sit around and do drugs and sort of muck about in some petals. We're talking about sort of serious ideas. But I query how... Now that we live in a sort of a globalised information-based society, how can we incorporate all of these sort of seemingly 
fractious and opposing concepts you know within the world of religion so much diversity and opposition within the world of politics so much diversity and opposition within the world of sexuality it feels to me that there needs to be a kind of people need to find their tribe live in their tribe each tribe should be able to live how it wants to in accordance with certain principles that no one transgresses along the lines of respect for individual freedoms and group freedoms and the sanctity of the planet Absolutely. So I totally understand that a lot of Brexiters who live in the countryside basically want to live in a way that small is beautiful. You know, Schumacher, small is beautiful because they they have an innate understanding that a small group of people like the town of Froome, for example, uh, has it has its own management that you want to manage a smaller group of people that you don't want some person outside of your small group to manage you i understand that however the reason that brexit to me doesn't make sense is that i understand that italy wants to be italy spain wants to be spain poland wants to be poland france wants to be france however we have to relate to each other we have to keep relating because, um, and I can, I can see why people don't want to be run by Europe. But if we don't relate to each other in Europe, we're going to be run over by a much bigger truck. What do you feel like a US sort of imperialism? Yeah, that there are these huge trucks around us and that the smaller trucks have got to kind of talk to each other. I think, all right, if that makes sense, but it's, it does it's, make sense. I just for a moment thought we went from like the list of drugs and or plummets yeah, and their effects. In, down well, let's into... do Brexit now. Now that we've done the sort of a the thing is that top obviously, hits from obviously, psychedelia. small is beautiful works. I mean, you know, Schumacher was a, a genius, and I don't uh, know nothing about Schumacher. Oh, what is that? Oh, he was someone. He wrote a book called Small is Beautiful, and that whole thing about seventy-five people. Mm. Y- you know, outside of that. What we call civilization then gets top heavy. It gets annoying. It's all of the things that people don't instinctively like. Mm. And, you know, don't let's talk about Brexit. But I can understand both sides, as you can, because the whole thing doesn't work. Yeah, because I understand both sides of everything. Exactly. The whole, But the whole thing doesn't work, does it? I mean, what what I enjoyed about the march was I enjoyed the peace I enjoyed everybody being together. I enjoyed the fact that all those people, and there were more than a million, were walking together with a purpose together in a peaceful way. It felt nice. It felt good. Mm. And that all those clubs and pubs in that area were opening their doors for people to have a pee, to have a drink. It felt as though everybody was together. I used to love a protest. Me, I used to go sort of May Day <laughs> marches, all sorts of things like that. But um, I kind of used to like the feeling of, oh my God, these structures can be toppled. I used to get myself in all sorts of silly scrapes as a yeah. But that's an important man. part of your learning. Mm. It's an incredibly important part. I mean, you know, we have to learn these things, and and we have to keep inquiring, keep asking, working out how we can live together in a better way and i know that we can and you know that we can definitely and but there's probably this is the other thing i feel like we have to enable people to express their uniqueness and simultaneously acknowledge our own limitations it seems that you and i are primarily interested in the reintroduction of the sacred into a post-secular 
late advanced capitalist society? How do people re-engage with the sacred? How do people understand their own masculinity, femininity, the combination of both of those things that exist within all of us? How and, and But there are people that are bloody good at understanding how machines work and how to organise societies and how to organise resources. And I, I like the idea of your sort of pods and communal living where people somehow get round to doing the washing up. I mean, my sense would have to be that there should be someone exempted from washing up who says, you make sure the bloody washing ups get down you <laughs> <a> lot. <laughs> if we were in the same place, I'd say, Russell, do the fucking washing up. I mean, I would do it anyway. <laughs> I know I'd be no would. trouble, honestly. I'll be no trouble in this, I know. in this cult. Um, uh, I, I read um, this morning a piece about AI, which I thought was interesting because obviously in these new societies, we're not going to go back to only eating yoghurt. No. Um, obviously, we have to introduce technology. We have to introduce AI and everything else because we are going to be living. It. We're not going to be living away from the world. Definitely one of the things that I have decided in Bath that works is that the children stay in one place and the adults can go and work for two or three days because the children are being looked after by the collective. Yes. And the adults can get away because one of the things that happens when you set up some community in the top of a mountain in Wales is you go stir crazy. Right, you go nuts. Okay? Because we're too stimulated. In, right, we've in, been civilised yeah, this way. I'm too stimulated. I go mad. I what do you have to, to do? Pop to Portobello Road and go to the cinema? <laughs> well, you you have to you have to have have a bacon sandwich. Yeah, exactly. You have to have stimulation. So these adults can come and go, but the children and the land. And the chickens and all the rest of it are there mm. as the basis. And then the adults can come and go. And therefore, they don't become bored with each other. They don't bicker. They don't, they're stimulated and they bring stimulation back in. And the whole thing remains like that river. It's flowing. Mm. It's not stagnant. Important. Wendy Mandy, is there anything else that you want to say? Because I think we've covered loads and loads of stuff. Let me see that if we covered every single thing on this sheet. Oh, uh, spiritual mentors and teachers. Do you want to give props or mention any of your spiritual mentors or teachers other than that fella that you was walking around with in the mass eyes? <laughs> only person that's had a look in. That's, I've had many. I've had many, but we can talk about that another time. Mentors yeah. are very important. I only heard today that you'd written a book called Mentors. I did write that. It was good, it was. Yeah. I wrote it. <laughs> yeah. It's all been written. Yeah, mentors are very important. Mm. All right, I feel like we've talked about everything. We'll carry yeah. on with our relationship, shall we? Yeah. Thanks very much for coming on, and thanks for the treatment. I feel like uh, there was a bit when you were doing the stabbing where I thought, oh, this is actually... Because you'd said... I'll ju my daughter said I should only give you a light treatment because if we're doing the podcast after, you might you know, be too fuzzy or lost or out there. And I went, <laughs> listen, listen, love. <laughs> just hit me with your best shot alright <laughs> I, can, I can handle a bus but it was a bit when you were stabbing me in the chest and I was, I was thinking oh no actually this might take me out there but uh, as it turned out it went quite well didn't it I hope so I'm very happy I am cheers thank you very much for inviting me I've really enjoyed it thanks for coming it's so lovely to meet you and you okay thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed that episode with Wendy Mandy Wendy Mandy remember let me know what you thought of it on Instagram tag me at true Russell brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin check out Rebirth on Netflix get my book Mentors as an audio book it's coming out in the US on the 9th and there will be some live shows Recovery Live I'm working on these interesting shows sort of personal development self-help and I'm taking advice from some of the absolute best people in the world on this stuff keeping it light keeping it 
funny, but hoping to evolve, hoping to help you to connect with the best version of you and of us, each of us with our own individual path, but possibly some common archetypal mythic coordinates that are universally applicable but you know, maybe they're not i don't know we'll find out uh if you want to look listen to some old episodes of under the skin you should do that while you can uh john mcavoy fantastic a man who used his time on a life sentence to become a world record breaking rower radhanath swami one of my personal mentors and a great teacher Naomi Klein, that was fantastic from season one. You all know who Naomi Klein is, presumably. And Paul Gilroy, brilliant academic and former Yale professor. I believe we talked about sort of race and class and stuff like that. It was a while ago. Subscribe and share it if you want. But also remember to go to luminary.link forward slash Russell for more information on how you can get free, free months off the thing. Sorry about my accent. It makes that confusing. Three free months for free <laughs> you'll get three free months for free okay um okay well that's that seems to be all of that um i love you as you probably know do you know that can you tell i hope you feel loved i hope you feel connected and at ease you do deserve to bye <laughs>